All right, everybody, good morning again. If you have a Bible, we're about to do something that um, is going to take a little bit of time. We are going to dive into a letter called 1 Corinthians. And this letter is written by a guy named Paul and a guy named Sosthenes. Anybody know a Sosthenes? No? Not really common? Um, we're about to dive into a bunch of names that aren't very common. Uh, but this is a, a letter written to a church in Corinth. And so for the next number of weeks and months, we're going to be plowing through this letter together. And our prayer is, is that it would do something not only to you and change you, but it would also change us. As we are very much like a church getting a letter uh, in the uh, New Testament. This is not a book. This is not a theology essay. This is a letter. And what's interesting is, you're, is we're actually going to be re literally reading somebody else's mail over the next number of weeks and months. And, and here's what's interesting. It's one of four letters that Paul, we think Paul wrote maybe even more to this group of people in Corinth. And uh, we learn this because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul mentions an earlier letter. So we're actually in 2 Corinthians, not to confuse you. This is, like, <laughs> this is kind of like his second letter to the Corinthians. And then we learn in 2 Corinthians, which is really what we think now is 3 Corinthians, that, that it might be 4 Corinthians. I know, totally confusing you right off the bat. So you're welcome. The problem is, is that many times when we do stuff like this, it's almost like we're listening to one side of the telephone conversation. Okay, because we're only hearing Paul. We're only hearing Paul and Sosthenes and their letter to the Corinthians. And so we need to work really hard to reconstruct what's happening. Um, there's this fancy stuck-up word called hermeneutics um, that is basically the science of studying the Bible and, and how to read the Bible and the context behind everything. And we're going to have to ask questions like, what's going on? What is the culture like? What are the people like? What is the, the religious um, environment like? What's the economics? And all these things that are happening at the time of this letter being written. And by doing that, we'll actually learn a little bit more of what Paul is, is getting at and what they're struggling with. And so we're going to do some of that. And all of that to say, we're going to start and we're going to go really slow the first three weeks. Okay? So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul. Stop right there. <laughs> told you we were going to go slow. Paul. Now, in a group like this, in a room like this, my guess is, is we come with a whole, uh, a whole bunch of different walks of life in the room. Some of you are here and you know all about that guy. Uh, you've heard about him. You've read about him. You've read his letters. Um, some of you are here and you have no, you, you picked up the Bible maybe Thursday. Or, or, and you've, or maybe you never have, and you don't know who that is. Some of you have been coming to church for a long time, and you still never picked the Bible up, you know? So 
We'll talk about that as we go too. But um, Paul is, uh, is this really interesting character. And to really understand this letter that Paul is writing to the Corinthians, we have to, we have to understand who Paul is. We have to get a sense of who he is. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to trace a little bit of who Paul is. And so for the first 10 minutes, 15 tops, you're going to get a little life story of Paul. Because that really informs where we're going over the next number of weeks. Is, uh, he is an interesting character. So if you have a Bible, we're going to jump out of 1 Corinthians. We're going to go to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, what's happened is um, the, all the, uh, the disciples are in uh, Jerusalem. This is where the way is. And the way is a sect of Judaism that believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And so these disciples are actually talking about this Jesus as the Messiah that the Jewish people have longed for uh, for centuries. And uh, there's a lot of people that don't like that. They don't like that this is being talked about. And so there is a guy named Stephen who is a part of this group of, of disciples. He's actually a deacon, um, and he is uh, part of their, their inner circle of, of, of working this out in the community. And he stands up to preach, and he starts to preach, and he starts to preach to a group of people that might seem kind of intimidating. See, they were the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is basically like the Supreme Court for the Jewish people. And Stephen stands up to preach to this group of people who have given their whole life to the ways of Judaism, who have given everything, who have, who have structured their life in such a way, and they know Jewish law in such a way that anything, um, anybody says anything that is against what they're teaching, uh, let's just say the alarm starts to sound. And Stephen stood up to preach, and in verse 57, he says this, it says this, at this... And this was a claim that Stephen made. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. This is like a four-year-old that doesn't want to hear something, covers their ears, yells, and then starts screaming and running. Um, they all rushed at him. And it says this, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. This young man is Paul. That is his Latin name, Saul. Um, and I'm um, sorry, that is his Jewish name, Saul. His Latin name is Paul. He is actually a, a, a man at this point in his life, in his late 20s, we think, maybe early 30s. He grew up and was trained in Jewish law. He was the kind, he was, he was like the teacher's pet. He was like the top of the class, cream of the crop. And a number, a couple of years ago, we talked about what it, the progression of what it looked like to become a, a rabbi's disciple. Um, Paul was this. Paul was a rabbi's disciple. In fact, every single, whether it was the first school, the second school, or the third school, Paul had memorized by this point the Old Testament, he had been around the biggest names in Jewish uh, professorship, okay? He had, he had followed, in fact, uh, he, is, he is a disciple of one of the biggest rabbi names in scripture, a man named Gamaliel. 
He's a big deal, Paul is, Saul is. He's charismatic. He knows his stuff. You know, you know how this is like, right? When you, you can tell that kid in the class that's like definitely got the top skills, that was him. Big deal. And all these people, these are all people that are part of the Sanhedrin, they come out to stone Stephen because that's the only just thing to do, right? When you disagree with someone, you throw rocks at their head to try to kill them. And they lay their coats at Saul's feet, which is a cultural way of saying, um, I'm, I'm laying my, clo- my coat at your feet. My coat means a, a whole lot more than if I just brought a coat to church today. My coat actually means uh, my identity, my trust is in your hands. So these people, while they're killing a man for disagreeing with them religiously, lay their coats at Saul's feet. Saul has this kind of authority. And it goes on to verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of their killing. Saul said, yep, this is what should have been done. This is a guy who is steeped in Jewish law. Says, yep, this is what you need to do. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church of Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So the disciples, the the followers of the way just scatter. Okay, They're like, we got to get out of Dodge. Uh, They take off. Paul is going house to house. He's got a hit list of people that he has heard about. He's probably interrogating people, and he's pulling people out of their houses and dragging them off to prison. The the word there, destroy the church, is actually the same word used in other places in the Bible when they talk about dogs ripping flesh off of, of dead animals. He is actually ripping the church apart. That's what Paul's doing. He's ripping it to pieces. He is a zealous, arrogant, religious bigot on a mission. That's what Paul is. And he's brutal. And his standing is as such that he has a whole bunch of people who will do whatever he says. And so he's telling them to do whatever he wants. He's on a rampage. Acts chapter 9 We get a little bit further into the story. Acts chapter 9, he sends a letter to the the Sanhedrin, the synagogues in Damascus, trying to get approval to chase down people who had left Jerusalem, right? So he's, he's already rounded up everybody in Jerusalem that he thinks he can round up, and now he's going after people who left the country, so to speak. Verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, uh, whether women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
he fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why are, wh- who are you, Lord? He, uh, Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So Paul's on his way to Damascus. He's got a whole bunch of people with him. He's got letters saying, I can drag your hiney back to Jerusalem. And he's, he's ready. And he meets Jesus. And he meets the Messiah on the road. Huge experience. Alters the entire trajectory of his life. Changes everything. And we know this because we skip down to verse 10. It says, in Damascus, there was this disciple named Ananias. So we don't know if Ananias had fled right, when everybody else fled, but we just know he's in Damascus, okay? The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, yes, Lord, which is probably normal for him. (laughs) It's just kind of not normal for me, but that's pretty cool. He's like, yes, Lord. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, which I'm told is still in Damascus, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, Uh, He has seen a man named Ananias come and place hands on him to restore his sight. Now, Ananias says this, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Uh, Which is basically Ananias saying, no, I don't want to do this, (laughs) right? Like he's heard of him. He knows of him. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim uh, my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So what I think is interesting is in this list, um, the first person that he is going to, the first people that that Saul is going to proclaim the name to is Gentiles, which is kind of anti-Jewish, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of a big deal, like that this is the first group of people that he's supposed to proclaim the name to. And then it says, and their kings next. So it's the Gentiles and their kings, then to the people of Israel. Wow, it's pretty scandalous. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So Paul's, um, in my Bible, it says, a little chapter heading, uh, it says Paul's conversion which is another one of those things that I dislike about Bibles is they tell you, they, they try to tell you what they're going to say before they say it, but it's actually not. Uh, scholars would, uh, would argue that this isn't Paul's conversion at all. Uh, Paul is Jewish. This is a sect of Judaism. 
So in our American context of, of whether you're a Christian or not a Christian or a different religion or whatever like that, we see it that way. But that's not really what was happening. What, what was happening here is Paul actually got to see the fulfillment of the promised Messiah up close and personal. And everything changed for him. He was radically reshaped in that moment. He's still Jewish through and through. Okay? But the Messiah has now entered his life and changed everything for him. Now, now we, we, here's what we get. It says, Paul spent the several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues. Like he didn't waste any time. He starts to go to the synagogues and he's preaching to the synagogues um, that Jesus is the son of God. And all those, just, just back up a second here. So Paul's stirring the pot in Jerusalem, right? He's making everybody freaked out. He shows up to Damascus. Everybody's afraid of this guy. They know he's coming. He has this amazing experience where he meets the Messiah, and then he marches into the synagogues and starts telling everybody that Jesus is the Messiah. That is crazy. That is so insane. And, and, and all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem? among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 23, it says, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Right, so like the hunted, the hunter becomes the hunted, right? Uh, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. Verse twenty nine, it says, he talked and debated with Hellenistic Jews, and they tried to kill him. Uh, so all these different groups are plotting to kill this guy, right? Um, and it's just stirring everything up, and it's crazy. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. They like literally said, come here, you're getting on a boat and we're getting rid of you. You are stirring it all up right now. And then it says in verse 31, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, I love this, enjoyed a time of peace. Like, like let's put Paul in a boat, man. Like he is firing everything up. And it says they were strengthened and living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. So they enjoy this time of peace. And, and here's what we don't, uh, it doesn't say, but we know because of dating and things like that, that it's about 13 to 14 years before we hear from Paul again. Like what a story, right? This guy is like, doing his thing, like doing his uh, very high up religious Jewish thing. He's, he's, he's stirring everything up. He has this amazing experience where he sees Jesus, the Messiah. He starts to preach and everything's going crazy. And they just, they just send him away, send him to this little island. Um, and, and, it's, and what we learn from uh, what we can kind of conjecture from this is Paul, he has to live, he has to survive. And we think that this is where he learned how to make tents. This is where he learned a trade. See, growing up, if you were a little young Jewish boy um, and you didn't make it after those certain schools, um, you would go back and you would learn a trade. You would learn your father's trade. You would become a fisherman like your father. You would become a carpenter or stonemason or whatever. Paul never did that. 
We're talking a guy probably in his late 20s, early 30s getting his GED. We're talking about a guy who all of his friends have a, have, have all the people around him who are his age are probably married with children and have a, a career, quote unquote. And Paul lands back in Tarsus. And people are probably like, wait, didn't you, weren't you like, yeah. <laughs> and he learns to make tents. And that's the last we hear from him until Acts 13. In Acts 13, there's a church that's in Antioch. And, and, there were, and it says this in verse 1. And there were prophets and teachers. Sorry, no, Acts 11, sorry. When Bar- then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. What we, what we think is that Barnabas is like, hey, you think it's time? You think it's time we go find um, Luke, Luke Skywalker, I mean Paul, um, again on his little lonely island? You think it's time we bring him back? So Barnabas goes and gets him. Acts 13, it says, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, that guy, uh, (laughs) who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas, and Saul for the work for for the work which I have called them. Remember that word called, called them, so that after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And what we know about Paul's life is Paul travels over, we believe, at least ten thousand miles walking in his missionary journeys. And this is the beginning of it. In his thirties. Or 40s, he's setting off on these this long journey. And the first thing they do is that one of the first major cities they land in is a city uh, named Corinth. They'd gone to Athens, and then it says this in chapter 18, verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And what they would do is they'd go to these major urban cities, And that's where they would start. Usually because there was already a pocket of Jewish people there that they could connect with and then begin to do their thing. It says, there he met a Jew named Achilla, uh, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. There's uh, leave, leave Rome. There's tons of background on this. You can do some reading on it, but we believe it's between 49 and 50 AD. Uh, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And this is a, an interesting thing we're going we're gonna to revisit down the road when we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. There were people that looked down on him because he had a trade. And, and long story, but we'll get to that. Every Sabbath, he re- reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, so he quits his day job, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So he starts preaching to the Jews, which is the normal kind of cadence, right? 
Uh, and then when, he, when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest, which I'm sure some of you married couples do. We're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. He shook out of his clothes in protest, and he said to them, uh, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And we gloss over this, uh, but this is a big deal. This is a change in the mission and everything like that. Um, then Paul left the synagogue, and this is my favorite part, and went next door. He just like went next door to the house of Titius, Justus, a worshiper of God, and Crispus. The synagogue leader in his entire household believed in the Lord. Um, if you're thinking of biblical uh, baby names down the road for guys, I'm just throwing it out there. Hundred bucks. I'll, I'll contribute hundred dollars to their to their college savings account if you name one of them Crispus or Titius. <laughs> Nobody. Um, so this whole household thing is really interesting too, because the whole household meant all of your servants, all of the people connected to your household, uh, the generations. I mean, this is a huge group of people, huge. So the church is like growing like that. God fearing Latin, Roman Gentiles. And so the first Corinthian church really starts off predominantly Gentile not Jewish. I mean, here's what you need to understand when we're talking about background. What you're seeing is a whole bunch of ex-pagans come to know Jesus. And not pagans in the sense of, of like, you dirty pagans, you know, like you're probably thinking, but this was actually the pagan religion uh, was a multiplicity of gods, a multiplicity of ways to worship we'll get into in the weeks to come. And, and, and many of those worshiping experience had to deal with anything you did economically, if you wanted children, if you wanted business to go well, anything you did, you sacrificed something to these gods and these idols. In fact, there was temple worship and prostitutes were involved. I mean, this is, this is a bunch of public school kids, not homeschool kids. I'm not messing with anybody who's either one. I'm just saying it's a different crew than the normal Jewish group, okay? And so prior to Jesus, they're worshiping in the temple. There's immorality, idolatry. Everything's rampant. There's this pluralistic society that they're a part of. It's just a whole different ballgame. And then it says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. This had to be a relief for Paul. And, he's, and God's saying, keep going. And I love that line, I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. What kind of a God looks down and says, I have many people here. I am on the move God is at work in this city that we love here in Arvada, Westminster, Denver. In fact, I just want to pause and tell you that there's a group of churches that we, every year we pray for each other. Today, we're being prayed for by a whole bunch of churches in Arvada. It's really humbling. So there's great churches around here. And so if you're, if you're really grumpy and cynical about this place, there's some great go be grumpy and cynical at. I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> then the crowd, verse 17, we're getting towards the end here, trust me. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Galileo showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria. So this is like the longest he stays anywhere besides Ephesus. Paul stays there. And then and we learn about three or four years later, um, he writes a letter back to Corinth. And this is how it begins. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, who just got beat four years before. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. I love that word called. He says he's called to be an apostle, an apostle is basically one sent on a mission. In fact, it's a very Roman term for somebody who basically establishes a beachhead on foreign soil. And Paul has been called. And we know when he got called because they laid his hands on him in Antioch. And they called him. The Holy Spirit called him there. We know that part of his story. And he's on mission. He's called to be an apostle by the will of God. And Paul is essentially saying, hey, everybody, remember my story. And, and we just went through his story, but I'm sure that over the years he's with the people of Corinth, he tells them his story over and over and over again. And I'm sure they were like, wow, that is amazing. You went from being this to being this. You went from murdering and plundering and throwing people in jail to being the one who's carrying the banner. You went from this to this. And I love how it's co-authored by Sosthenes. A lot of times we just, we just give Paul the credit. Eight of the 13 letters that Paul writes in the New Testament are co-authored. It's not all Paul. In fact, what we learn is that Paul is actually a bit, one of the biggest team players. Like he gathers people around. I'm sure they were sitting in a room. They had a scribe and things like that. And they're like, we got to respond to what we're hearing in Corinth. We gotta, we gotta see what's going on. We gotta, we gotta let them know what's happening, what they need to know. In fact, the New Testament, this whole idea of a team, the New Testament, there's no place in the New Testament that talks about some power-hungry, solitary CEO-type leader in the New Testament. There's nowhere that that's the case. It's always about a team. It's always about uh, praying and moving in step with each other in the New Testament. And, and, and really, that's also true for you. You are not called to walk this journey by yourself. You're not called to learn as much as you can and just be like, ah, I've got this. No, you're called to be in league and in team with other people. And so when we step into 1 Corinthians, and this is the final kind of we're landing the plane right now for those of you taking notes. Three things, two things actually that you need to know that we've learned from Paul's biography in this first line of 1 Corinthians. So when we step into 1 Corinthians, okay, there's this whole world beyond the text. There's this whole world happening, and we're trying to immerse ourselves into that story because we learn from that story, and we learn from Paul's story, okay? So what we learn from Paul's biography in a little bit in 1 Corinthians is this. Salvation, okay, is about total, complete, holistic life transformation. 
That's Paul's story. That Paul's biography shows us that he got a new identity. He went from Saul to Paul. He got a new community. He went from the Sanhedrin to the way. He got a new uh, mind. He sees scripture in a whole different way. The prophets and everything that, that has been spoken of in the Old Testament. He got a new, new mission. His mission was to stop the way, and now it was to spread the kingdom gospel. He got a new heart. What he hated, he now loves. We call that Regeneation. The things you hate, you now love. And the things you loved, you begin to despise. He has a new future, a new hope, a new horizon. Chapter 15, we're going to get to, is all about the resurrection and what we can look forward to as a people. He is absolutely transformed from the inside out, Paul is. So salvation is not like, a, hey, I'm just going to add this to my life. It's actually just completely altering everything in his world. Now, we have a serious problem today in our kind of Christian culture. And that problem is that uh, it tends to be that we've lost the fullness of what the gospel is. And the gospel is something way bigger and way more encompassing than we've um, kind of lived it to believe. Um, and we've kind of truncated it down. We've truncated it down to this line that says, and you guys know what I'm going with this, Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that one day you can go to heaven when you die. And is that true? Don't be afraid. Yes, it is true. But there's so much more, right? There's so much more to it than that. And... Paul is given a new identity, and like Paul, you and I are given a new identity. We're given a new mission. We're given a new heart. We're given a new future and a new hope and a new way of doing life. We're given all of that too, and we can be fundamentally and absolutely remade from the inside out. And that's what we learn from Paul's biography. And way too many of us, way too many of you are Christians, but you're not followers of Jesus. I know that sounds kind of crazy. Many of us are believers, but we're not really followers. Because if you're following Jesus, it means your life is going somewhere. Does that make sense? And, and to believe, yes, believing is the starting point. There's something about um, the gospel kind of arresting our thought life and becoming um, true but believing and following are two different things. They're linked, but they're also separate. And many of us have spent a lot of times in our lives just believing. And we want to believe more. So we do more studying and we do more Bible studies and we do more podcasts and we listen to more K-Love. <laughs> but we're not going anywhere. We're not changing. And maybe, you've, maybe you haven't really encountered the risen Christ in that way in your life. Because when we go face to face with Jesus, things begin to change, like radically change. The second thing I want to say is this. 
Um, we're all called by God. In this opening line, Paul says, Paul called to be an apostle. Next week, we're going to look at a line that says, to all those called to be holy. Paul is called, you are called, I am called. There's something about that separates, God separates us out. Now, there's two different ways to approach your faith. The first one, which is very, very classic American way of approaching your faith, is to add more God into your life. I need, you've probably said it, you've probably heard it, it's just a phrase, but it's kind of like, I need more God in my life. And we've, there's actually worship songs out there saying, God, more God in my life, more love, you know. But, there's, 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 but the interesting part about that is it's like I'm, I'm adding more of God into my life instead of God dragging me into his. See the difference with that? One of them's like kind of narcissistic, right? One of them's like, hey, God, will you bless my life? Will you bless my career? Will you, will you give me a spouse? Will, you know, those things. It's kind of letting life uh, letting my life contribute to God, like my, letting my life push into God's life instead of trying to get a little piece of God into mine. There's a huge difference there. Someone once wrote, wrote this. Um, it says, you cannot follow Jesus and walk down the road of least resistance at the same time. There's something about this gospel that Paul is preaching it is about losing your life. It is about changing your identity and your heart and your mission and your future and your hope. And so this morning, I just wanted to start us there as ones hearing this letter. And many, many of you, maybe for the first time, what does it look like? What does it look like to have your life radically reshaped by the Messiah? 